You are listening to a podcast from Classic City Church. We're glad you've joined us. Our services are held at 10.30 a.m. on Sunday mornings at 595 Prince Avenue in the Piedmont Sanctuary. For more information, please visit www.classiccity.org. This is a sermon from Pastor Lee Mason. Small cities, smaller than the other cities that were written to in the Bible. And um, it was located in a place called the Lycos Valley in Asia Minor. There were three larger cities there. One's a city named Heropolis. Another one's a city named Laodicea. And then there was Colossae, which was the smaller of those. And the, the way in doing research, what historians and you know, ancient researchers have found out is that in this area, the sort of prevailing religious you know, ideology was what they would call animism. And basically, it was a, an animus was somebody who understood or believed God was in everything, or the gods were in everything. And they interpreted everything spiritually and religiously. And they believed that there were certain gods that were over the winds, certain gods over the rain, certain gods over all the elements. There were certain gods that were over every tribe of people. And certain gods had power over certain elements in nature. And, and so whenever something happened, they interpreted it religiously. If a hurricane, if a storm came through and destroyed stuff, they would interpret that as the, one of the weather gods or the combination of weather gods were mad at them for some reason. And they had to figure out what it was. And they would offer sacrifices, sometimes doing some very demented evil things to tr- sort of try to appease these gods. Um, they, a lot of their life was spent trying to get on the good side of their gods, win their favor over, uh, be- become acceptable to them. And so for, for somebody in this mindset, they, they became very pluralistic. And they would often, if, if they tried something and it didn't work to the gods they knew, they would go find other people's gods and they would try to appease them. And so they just often would incorporate elements of other religions into their own tribal religion they grew up with. Very common practice. And so into this milieu of religion came a guy named Epaphras, and he brought the gospel there. And he talked about the monotheistic God of Judaism and how he became incarnate in Jesus Christ, how he died on the cross, and how through that death he makes us acceptable to God. Not all these rituals and sacrifices and ceremonies and, and sometimes deviant practices they were doing. It makes you inc- completely acceptable to him. <clears throat> and then he also comes to live inside you and empower you to, to live a new life. And that's kind of where, he's, where Paul is with this letter. He's just re- reiterating uh, those truths. And then what he's doing is he, as he gets to chapter 2, he starts addressing different wrong thoughts and wrong beliefs that were in that culture, some of them. And he kind of sort of wants to align their misthinking with truth and with what the gospel teaches. And so that's kind of where we're we're at here. And so to an animus, there are basically three things that are, are really concerning to you. One thing is your past sins, because you don't want to get retribution for something you've done bad in your past. Second thing that's very concerning to them is their own moral flaws. 
I mean, they're just, they just are kind of overwhelmed at times by their own moral flaws. And the, the third thing they're very, very concerned about is evil. They're very concerned with supernatural evil uh, hurting them and harming them and, and destroying their life. And these were the things. So Paul's going to sort of address that. And if you look at this passage, in verse, starting with verse 6 through verse 15, I want you to notice how many times Paul uses a phrase. And the phrase would be the, the phrase, in Christ or in him or with Christ. But the this idea of being, he's going to emphasize something called our union with Christ. And so let's read through this in verse 6, and I'll read through verse 15. Colossians 2, 6 says, So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives. What does he say after that? In him. Rooted and built up in him. Strengthened in faith as you were taught. Overflowing with thankfulness. Verse 8 says, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental forces of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. Verse 10, and in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. Verse 11 starts out, in him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which we were also raised with him through our faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Verse 13, you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, and God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all your sins. Having canceled out the charge of legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us, he had taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a spectacle of them, having triumphed over them by the cross. Now, let me give you a little background on what Paul's trying to emphasize here. He is emphasizing what it means to be in Christ over and over again to these guys. And he, he, he teaches us a little more stretched out and a little more elaborately in another part of one of his letters in, to the book of Romans in chapter 5. And, and what he basically teaches about that is this. All of humanity is understood to be in Adam. We're all understood to be in Adam. Now, what does it mean by that? It simply means this, that if you were to trace your lineage back, you came from a parent. Those parents had parents. Those, if you could trace all of humanity back through time, all of us, in a sense, were at one time in Adam. He's the beginning of the human race. We were in him. And what happened is when Adam fell, the Bible says that he would, what did God say would happen to him the moment he sinned? He would what? Surely die. Now, in the story of Adam and Eve in Genesis, did, did, did they bite the fruit and then fall over dead? Anybody? No. So what does it mean by die? And Paul elaborates this in Romans 5. It simply means to die spiritually. 
And it means that all humanity, every one of us, has this in common. We have, we have, every human has this in common. We are born spiritually dead. We're depraved. We're sinful. And because we are, we are dead spiritually, every one of us sins naturally. Every one of us. You ever notice that? How many of you have kids? You know, you ever notice this? It was an amazing thing. I didn't have to teach my kids how to fight with each other. I don't have to teach them how to lie. I don't know where they get. They just learn. They just. I don't have to teach them how to how to how to be selfish. It, it is the most natural thing to do. We we are naturally defiant animals. Right now, if I tell you, do not look up at the ceiling, at the peeling paint, which we so adore. If I tell you, don't look up at the ceiling at this peeling paint, don't look up there, what do you want to do? You didn't want to look at it before. If you want to, you can go ahead and you can look up and get it out of your system. But there's something very natural about human beings wanting to, to do this. One of, the, one of the silly things that is going on in our culture that we do, we, it's... It's amazing how absurd human beings get when they try to bring salvation to human problems independent of Christ. And, and here's the big problem. We, we are trying to, you have, you, you, are, you have fallen people trying to fix a broken world. And it doesn't work. It doesn't work. And God's will for the salvation of this planet is to fix fallen people. And once they're fixed, then they can actually fix the world around them. So this is what it means to be in, in Adam is that dynamic. In Christ simply means this. When you commit your life to Christ, it, it is, and this is a way even the Bible would illustrate it. It is like taking a vine that is attached to a bad tree, taking it off there and grafting it into a healthy vine. If you do that, if you have a toxic, bad vine, the fruit is going to be terrible. If you take that twig off and you put it into a healthy vine, what's going to start happening? It's going to produce a whole different fruit. It's connected to a whole different life source. And to be in Christ is to be connected to him as your life source, not Adam. Every one of us are who we are because of our past. What, 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 the parents you were connected to, the circumstances you were connected to, the experiences you connected to, those have all shaped a certain human being. And independent of, of Christ, that human being is going to be flawed and fallible and fallen. And what God wants to do is connect us to a whole new past, to a whole new life source, and that's Christ. And this is what he's talking about in this passage. Let's go through some of this and learn some of the dynamics of this sort of in Christ phenomenon that you and I can experience as Christians. Verse 6 says this, as you, can, as you receive Christ the Lord, continue to live your lives in him. That's a great statement right there. How do we receive Christ as what? Lord, as Lord. And he's saying, you know what? If you say Christ is your Lord, here's what I want you to do. I want you to walk it out. I want you to continue in that. The, the, don't just say Jesus is Lord and don't live it. He says, I want you to really walk this thing out. And he goes on here and he tells you what this looks like. 
Verse 7 says you'll be rooted, you'll be built up, and you'll be strengthened just as you were taught in the faith. And then you'll be overflowing with thankfulness. Now think about those things. Rooted. If a tree wants to have a good, long life, what does it need to get? It needs to get, it needs to get its roots in the earth, right? It'll become permanent. It'll become strong. He's saying, I want you to be rooted in what you believe. I want you to be rooted in Christ. I want you to be rooted in what your faith is about. That means learning about Jesus. It means learning the Bible. It means learning theology. It means learning how to think through and reason through what the Bible teaches. I want you to get rooted. I want your roots to go deep. And then he says, I want you to be built up. And that literally is like when you, when you take a building and you build a big, tall building. He says, I want you to really stretch out. I want you to grow to the sky. I want you to really go for it and get up there. Be rooted, but then I want you to be built up. And then he says the third thing, I want you to be strong. I want you to be strengthened. If we're going to live out our faith, if I'm just not going to say Jesus is my Lord, but I'm going to live it out Monday through Sunday, I've got to have these things going on. I've got to be rooted. I've got to be strengthened. And I've got to be built up. I've got to be going for it. And then he says uh, the other thing that's going to happen, you're going to be overflowing with thankfulness. What a great thing. Your attitude is, is positive and it's, it's thankful and it's grateful and it's focused on what God's done for you. Verse 8 gets into this. So why, why aren't we always like this? Why aren't we always rooted, built up, strengthened, vibrant, overflowing with thankfulness? He says here in verse 8, see to it. And he says, be really careful about this. That no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and on the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. And what is he, what is he talking about there? Elemental spiritual forces. And he's really going back into their past. And he uses the same word in the book of Galatians. And he, the, the basic idea is he's basically talking about what they were like as pagans. That they basically believed God needed to be manipulated. God needed to be appeased. God needed to be, you know, was this angry being trying to hurt them and harm them for doing wrong. And he says, look, you know, don't live in that. Don't be caught. Don't be snared by, by that kind of mentality. God is not like the deities you grew up with. He's not what you imagined. He's saying, I want you to have a, an understanding of God that's rooted in the Bible, not rooted in tradition, not rooted in what you grew up with. And he also says, don't be captured by a hollow or deceptive philosophy. You can say, well, that's not me. I'm not captured by a hollow or deceptive philosophy. I don't even read those guys. Descartes and all those. Nietzsche. And, you know, I think... I am amazed when I have looked over the last 30 years as a Christian, one of the things that has changed drastically, and I'm amazed at, is how many Christians have become captured, and the word captured literally means to be in prison, like you're in a war, just captured, by a political philosophy. I am amazed. I have been a part of churches 
that literally were more up on what the news said and the talk radio guys were than what the Bible said. And you could ask them questions about current events and they could just spew them out with conviction and with vigor. And I don't care if it's conservative or liberal. I, I, just, I see Christians get into both and, and just think, they just get obsessed with this stuff. And it's like Jesus is just sort of a bystander to, to really solving the world's problems. What we need is more, more right-wing legislation or more left-wing, whichever side they are. And I just, it's just an amazing thing to me. Captured imprisoned by silly, hollow, deceptive philosophy. And he's saying, don't let that happen to you. Don't let that happen to you. There is one God, there is one Savior, and there is salvation in no other name. Jesus Christ, Christianity is not a side religion to some philosophy that's going to change the world. Christ is the world changer. He is the king. In Daniel chapter 7, it talks about him, and he's, he's called the son of man coming up to the ancient of days, coming up to God. And the Bible says that all, every dominion is his. Every kingdom is his. All nations, all peoples are going to serve him. And it literally says all the rulers of the earth are going to worship and glorify him. All of them, whoever they are. And this is what we need to settle our, our minds on and get out of these silly, hollow, deceptive anti solutions to what's really wrong with our world. He says, Don't let that happen. Don't be captured. And here's what he says in verse 9 In Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Listen, he is not an, a great idea or a wonderful solution, or a salve for a cut. He is the embodiment of Almighty God. There's nothing like him. And we need to be captured by the embodiment of Almighty God. We look at problems in our culture and problems in our society, and not deceptive, hollow people who want to manipulate your faith to their own ends. He's it. He is fullness. And then it says this in verse 10. And in Christ you have been brought to fullness. Now what does that mean? In Christ you've been brought to fullness. Let me get somebody to help me up here with this. Uh, thank you, Eric. You, you and Kate would do this. I want to illustrate this to you. Remember a few weeks ago we talked about how we talked about the word fullness and how Jesus, we read earlier in verse, uh, I think it was verse 19 of chapter 1. How Jesus is the fullness of deity and bodily form. Do you remember that from a few weeks ago? Probably not, but I did my best. I had a, remember we had two cups here. It, we have a cup. You remember I, I talked about how we, you know, fullness was like you had one full cup poured into an empty cup. And, you know, it meant basically every drop of God was in Christ. Do you remember that? Okay, here's what he does. He, he kind of reiterates this and says, in all the fullness is in bodily form. But then he says this, in him, you're what? You've been filled. What does that mean that if all the fullness of God is in Christ and in him you've been filled? What does that mean? Well, let me, let me illustrate that to you. If I am, if this is me and this is Christ, what does it mean? It means in him, 
filled. Remember we talked about Christ being in you? That's Christ in you. But here's what I want to show you is that in him being filled is not just him in you, but it's you in him. It's you submerged in him. And this is the picture Paul is trying to paint of what it is to be a Christian. It is you submerged in him, in him, in him. He is God's fullness, and in him you have been filled. You are soaked. You are saturated with him. Now, now, if you have this going for you, if this is a reality in your life, what else do you need? So I'm struggling with these fears. What does that compare to this? What you and I might be afraid of. Oh, I've got this bad thing from my past. What is that compared to this? And this is the kind of point Paul's trying to make is in terms of our own personal. Oh, boy. I knew I was going to do that. <laughs> somebody, somebody get this. this is, I, am not, I don't feel comfortable anymore. Thanks a lot. <laughs> Thanks, Deb. Appreciate it, guys. All right, we got this. But this is what he's saying here about what it means to be in him. And he goes on to illustrate it in a couple ways. One is he, he talks about being circumcised in the next thing. And, of course, we know that was an Old Testament ritual. If you don't know what circumcision is, I promise you I'm not going to explain it up in front of several hundred people. Uh, I can guarantee you that. Look it up. Google it. But it basically meant the, uh, the removal of what was considered unclean. That was part of the Jewish covenant, covenant ceremony. They removed what they understood was unclean in a male. And he's saying, listen, and in the Bible when it talks about over and over again, the prophets would tell them, you know, that, that, that's an outward ceremony. He would say, be circumcised in your heart. Remove what's unclean in your heart. And what he is saying here is Christ has removed what is unclean in our lives. Isn't that incredible? He's removed the uncleanness. He's removed it. And he's going to go on to keep elaborating on this. If you look in the next verse, let's look down here in verse, um, let me just read verse 11. In him you are also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. Verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, really similar to what we just did. That is, we baptized that cup in a bowl. He's saying you have been baptized into him in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. What's he saying there? He's saying this. In a sense, you and I, when Jesus died on the cross, were crucified with him. You died with him. Your sins were judged when he was on that cross. And then he says, not only that, though, just as he was buried, you were buried. And just as he was raised from the dead, you were raised from the dead. He was resurrected, and he says the same power, the same force that brought his corpse back to life is actively bringing you out of sin into God's you know, plan for your life, powerfully and dynamically. And that's an awesome reality. And that's what it means to be in him. That's what happens when we put our faith in him, when we commit our lives to him, when we connect with him. And then he goes on here in verse 13. When you were dead in your sins, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all your sins. Here's how he forgave them. He canceled out the charge of legal indebtedness, which stood against us 
and condemned us, and he took it away, nailing it to the cross. Now, back in those days, um, when they had something, a, a credit system kind of uh, like this, they would write almost like IOUs. It was a certificate of debt. And I would say, I owe, you know, Fred Goldman, my father-in-law, hundreds of thousands of dollars, whatever. You just, you'd write it on there. I'd owe, you know, whoever, Chris Davis, $10,000 if I borrowed. And Chris had this certificate, and, and he could hold it over me. If I didn't pay it back, he could, it was a very, you did not want a certificate of indebtedness against you because it just ruined your credit. It wiped you out. It was like a bad loan, a bad deal. And it was, and it was just, and it was almost, it wasn't, and he describes it here, it's not just against you. He describes it as being antagonistic to you. Like it's actively against you. And, and that's what this was. And he's saying that Jesus, our sins were like that. And he says, Jesus, he says he, he literally wiped them out. It's like taking a, a it's like taking a past due and, and erasing it. And just turning it into plain white paper. Like it never existed. Erasing it. And that's what he does with our sins and with our, our, our sense of inferiority and our sense of, of you know, of, of the, the buildup of our past. He wipes it out. Like it never existed. And he says he nailed it to the cross. That's what Jesus was doing on the cross. Wiping it out. As though it never existed. Then in verse 15, let me close with this. This is a really great verse. He says, And he disarmed the powers and authorities and made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Now, what's that talking about? Now, when he says powers and authorities, again, he is talking about powerful, dynamic, evil forces. That's just that's the language of the Bible. Powerful, dynamic, evil forces that are at work in our world. And he's saying that when Christ died on the cross, he made a public spectacle out of them. And there was a, back in the Roman days, they would do this thing called a public spectacle. And what would happen is that if, if a general conquered uh, some people, the people that were threatened or the, the, this, the city where the soldiers came from, they would have a public spectacle to celebrate them. And the, the conqueror would come through, the general would have a gold crown on his head, and they would ride him through in a chariot. And then all the soldiers would march. Then behind them, all the conquered would, be, would march behind them with no armor, no equipment. And they would be tied up and imprisoned. And that was called, and they would cheer and scream. And it was a proud thing. And it was just, it was the spectacle that the conquered are being paraded. And this is what they're describing Christ is doing on the cross. Conquering evil. Parading evil. This is God not conquering with power. It is God conquering in absolute hell. You know, it's one thing if your enemy has more stuff than you, has more weapons, and he defeats you. If your enemy is hanging on a cross and he defeats you, you don't have a chance. Is that correct? And he's saying he, he, he made a spectacle of this. He triumphed over them through the cross. You know, I didn't fight in the Revolutionary War, believe it or not. (laughs) But in a sense, I am in the guys who did. 
I benefit from their victory. I benefit from the battles they won. They, they become our victory. And this is what Paul and the Bible teaches us over and over again. Christ won a victory over evil that was resounding 2,000 years ago on the cross. And that victory benefits us. It benefits you. You have power over evil. You have power over sin in our lives. You have power over debilitating habits. We have power over the destructive things that may have happened in our past that have really tried to make us something God didn't want us to be. So this is what he's telling them. This is what it means to be in Christ. It means three things. Number one, your sins are wiped away. His death on the cross was your death on the cross. It wiped away all your sins. Here's what it means to be in Christ. It means you have a new life source. You're a new person. Over and over again, the Bible uses the word, you're a new creation. You're, a, you're new. And old habits and old things can fall off. They no longer have to dominate and control our lives. And the third thing it says is you have power victory over evil. You really do. You don't have to be tyrannized or terrorized or afraid. You have real power over evil. And this is what it means to be in him, those three things. Let's, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for Christ, and we thank you that, that by faith in him and by the Holy Spirit, we can be in him We um, know what it was like to be a human being born in Adam. We know what it's like to be condemned. We know what it's like to be vulnerable and spiritually dead. We know what it's like to be under the tyranny of, of evil. We thank you in Christ. It's a, it's a whole new day. We are really different people. We are people that are no longer condemned. We are people no longer dead but alive. We are people no longer under the tyranny of an enemy. But we are victorious in you. And we thank you so much for this victory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Classic City Church. We hope that together we can honor the greatness of Jesus by growing spiritually, living authentically, and participating in his purposes. For more information or more sermons from Classic City Church, please visit www.classiccity.org.